everyone, and welcome to the Becker's Pediatric Leadership Virtual Forum. I'm Mackenzie Bean, Managing Editor with Becker's Hospital Review, and I'll be your moderator for today's session on the unique challenges faced by pediatric leadership. Today, I'm joined by four great pediatric leaders to really pause and reflect on some of the greatest challenges they're facing right now and what the healthcare industry can do about them. So before we dive into those challenges, I'd love to turn the floor over to each of our panelists just to briefly introduce themselves and tell us about their organizations. Would you like to start, Dr. Carter? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, my name is Jody Carter. I uh, work at Phoenix Children's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. We are a very large uh, tertiary children's hospital, largest tertiary children's freestanding children's hospital in the state of Arizona. We're also a uh, emerging healthcare system with a full spectrum of services. Uh, we have a clinically integrated network called the Phoenix Children's Care Network, which is a pediatric only clinically integrated network. My role in the organization uh, is to uh, lead clinically the uh, clinically integrated network. I'm the chief medical officer of the Phoenix Children's Care Network. I'm also the chief clinical integration officer for Phoenix Children's as a whole focusing a lot on how families and children move through our entire system as we expand it. I'm a general pediatrician by training, still practice one day a week, and I'm thrilled to be a part of this discussion. Thank you. We're excited to have you, so thanks for being here. Let's turn it over to Dr. Mendelson next. Hi, very nice to meet you all. My name's Nancy Mendelson. I work at United Health Group in uh, the United Healthcare side of the organization. I'm the chief medical officer for our special needs initiative and complex health solutions. My background is I'm a clinical geneticist by training. I worked for 30 years as a clinician and hospital administrator. Um, so my role is to help with our, with our special needs initiative to lead solutions for children with complex medical issues. Wonderful. Thanks for being here, Dr. Mendelson. Let's turn to Dr. Rubin next, and then we'll go to Dr. Lee. Yeah, thanks for having me today. I'm the uh, I'm a general pediatrician, uh, uh, and I'm the director of Policy Lab and our Population Health Innovation Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is a large regional network that's not just a hospital system, but also includes uh, about 33 practices covering uh, 250,000 plus lives uh, annually um, in our primary care uh, network. And we have a large subspecialty network as well too. Um, my role in the organization, particularly as it relates to population health management, is to focus on point of care applications that can help improve the, improve the efficiency in terms of moving high volumes of patients, whether through our primary care or our specialty programs. And then building some level of common supports for uh, particularly the linkages to community services and resources that people need. Um, we've had a number of our, we've had our work peer reviewed and have actually sh uh, shown some substantial improvements in both quality and, and cost outcomes as well. And because of some of that success, we've just uh, recently spun out um, a company to, to help other organizations develop whether adult or pediatric uh, point of care solutions that really improve the efficiency across interdisciplinary teams. And, and that organization is called WellConnects, in, in which I'm the chief medical advisor. Perfect. Thank you for being here. Uh, last but not least, Dr. Lee. Hi there. Thank you for having me today. Uh, uh, delighted to be here. 
uh, with my esteemed colleagues. Uh, I too am a general pediatrician. I, I've been at Boston Children's Hospital for four years and then the executive and medical director of our Department of Accountable Care and Clinical Integration. So uh, like, like you've heard from many of the other people, uh, we work on, on uh, uh, number one, accountable care risk contracts. So we have a, a, a Medicaid risk contract that's in its third year of operating in Massachusetts. It's a full capitation contract with 110,000 pediatric lives. And then we have a commercial risk contract as well uh, with about 30,000 lives. Our total primary care patient population in our network is 400,000 patients, and we stand the, span the entire state of Massachusetts. And then Children's Hospital and our specialists really are providers uh, uh, nationally and internationally uh, to kids with medical complexity, but we're also a community hospital within the city of Boston. So we have a large community footprint as well as a large worldwide footprint. And looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Well, let's dive right in. Um, I know you have all come today with two to three key challenges you're facing right now. Um, Dr. Lee, maybe you can start us off by sharing a first challenge that you're seeing at Boston Children's, and then I'd welcome the rest of our panelists to res respond or build off of your thoughts as desired, and we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, you know, in our, um, in our pediatric world, um, uh, we run into a couple of different challenges. One is that um, our cost uh, uh, trends for children look similar to adults in that we have a large number of kids who are relatively low cost and then a small number of kids who are high cost. Uh, and, but the path of care and needs for those children are very, very different from adults. And so a lot of times people think that the solutions that have worked for adults in accountable care will also work for children. And we found that almost universally not to be true. Uh, the complex kids have a wide variety of, of disorders. Uh, they are often disorders that they will carry for years and decades, as opposed to many of the high cost adults who are, are much closer to the end of life. And, and so it's, it's a very different spectrum. And then we have a large volume of kids uh, for whom we are really working on prevention and wellness and want them to grow into highly productive adults and get the best opportunities in life that they can. So trying to measure those two different things and trying to manage those two different things is a challenge for any large network, in, including ours. Yeah, and if I can just respond to that, um, I, I think one of the challenges we would all agree that we share in that space that Mike just touched on is the the expectations on outcomes related to the length of duration, typically, of these value-based contracts. Uh, understanding that the trajectory of childhood health and well-being, particularly for the majority of children who are, thankfully, healthy and well, uh, is very different than that of an adult population. So I think it's clear um, for many children's hospitals that big challenges having such a smaller number of kids who are those you know need more complex care are the highest cost. So let's get into you know how you are managing that. What solutions are you trying to get in place there? I can take a you know join the conversation here at Chop. Um, you know, I, I, I first would start off by saying that there's a there's a tremendous amount of experience, you know, starting in, from our pediatricians. If you look back to the history of care coordination, um, a lot of that work was principally uh, developed in areas of pediatrics. So I do think as you kind of survey the different organizations on this call, you're going to find that the experience with developing point of care solutions is probably more richly advanced in many ways in a lot of the pediatric institutions in terms of the interdisciplinary teams that people have developed, 
et cetera. Um, when you look at an ACO contract, for example, a lot of the focus early on has been on sort of uh, metrics. Uh, how do you inform doctors of metrics or teams of metrics? Um, how do you inform executives on the dashboard of how we're doing? When in fact, you know, at a time when we're seeing incredible amounts of burnout, if you're trying to change behavior on the front line, the goal is really more of a bottoms up approach where you're trying to work with teams to identify through a quality improvement design, those types of activities that can be distributed across a work team that align with uh, such ACO agreements, but are really about workflow. And, and I think if COVID's done anything, it's even magnified the need for these point of care solutions as we move some people to telehealth, to video visits, prescription refills, follow up from emergency departments. And how do you decide proactively to care for someone is really the, the, the common goal. Rather than waiting for someone to get in off of a waiting line, the goal is to use sort of what we call registries of patients and identify the workflows that among those registries that might proactively identify the, those who need a prescription refill or need a follow-up check following an emergency department visit or haven't been seen in a period of time and yet were identified as having a very high risk score based on an algorithm that could have come uh, you know, from uh, a pre-developed algorithm or one that was developed by the team that actually cares for the patient. And those are the types of applications we need to see more and more of because if you develop with, with the mind of how people do their work, you're more likely to change behavior and see the types of outcomes you want to receive. You know, David, it's really um, very helpful for you, for you to mention that. And I think from the perspective of United Healthcare, what we've tried to do is to develop our special needs initiative. And Jody can speak a little bit about the complex care initiative that we, we're, we've partnered with Phoenix Children's and a few other ho hospital systems across the country to identify exactly who you're talking about, those complex needs patients. And we partner with them where get, we give them a list of our members on the commercial side to be clear. And they're identifying these people, bringing them in, coordinating their care, and we're working on the insurance resolution partnership. And I think it's a a unique approach, and it's been very successful uh, to date. And I'll just add that, you know, sometimes it's a complex you know, program that goes across disciplines, but sometimes at our hospitals, it's actually just a single subspecialty program, our transplant kids sure. who all make sure they have their immunizations done be, uh, in a speedy fashion so that they can be ready for transplant. Um, you know, our diabetes program with regards to serial glucose monitoring and, and their A1Cs and, and, uh, and work with dietitians. And so for every program, it's a little bit different. For the, the kids with high complex special needs, there's a lot of cross-system uh, cross work that's really important as you develop those workflows. Yeah, if I can comment, um, follow up on both of the most recent comments, it strikes me that David's been really successful in finding solutions in the workflows of the boots on the ground team providing the frontline care. Where we've had success as a clinically integrated network and partnering with Nancy is really understanding for children with special health care needs, where do the clinical and the insurance company bump up against each other for these children? And how do we collaborate together to smooth that out? Um, and so, it's, it's been a successful program. Um, in, in my opinion, the success has been the United Health Group has a team that's assigned to Phoenix Children's special needs population as we've agreed to define it. 
Phoenix Children's has a team on the ground doing care management for these same children who really know the community we live in, the resources available, the providers uh, involved. And when we find that the issues are related to the team on the ground can't do what they need to do for the child in question because of a roadblock in the insurance, that's where this collaboration has been able to quickly remove that red tape and move care forward efficiently for the patient and family. And we've been able to, to demonstrate over now a couple of years of, of doing this um, that patient and family satisfaction has tremendously increased um, and we do believe that we're starting to see some cost savings from that collaboration. Um, and I will just say from our perspective, I think we see greater cost savings with this population and this collaboration um, than we do doing the same care management process with the same uh, complexity of children, but without that direct partnership with the health plan. So it's been a really interesting model for us to explore. And uh, Nancy, I don't know if you want to mention anything else about it. Strikes me as a piece that may be helpful to add to what David's working on. Yeah, I think it. it if we try to look at every health system separately, and we don't reach across to a, from an insurance perspective to a multitude of health systems, we're just gonna have a divided system. So the more that we can partner with different health systems and reach across for insurance resolution, shared best practices, and to try and create solutions not only for the children and locally, but also for their parents and their family to make sure they're having the support they need as well. So it's got, from my perspective, if we can do more more broadly, it'll be very helpful. Can so, I add to that, you know, it was um, in Massachusetts when they created our accountable care organizations in Medicaid, they actually created 17 of them across the state. Four of them are partnered with the same insurer. The, uh, many of the others are partnered with MassHealth. Um, so it actually complicated the system in a lot of ways as opposed to simplifying. For our primary care network, it is somewhat easier because they only have one uh, as opposed to multiple Medicaid organizations or and Medicaid MCO organizations. But, but for the hospital, it actually made it more complicated. And so I think as people think through these things, some of these hurdles are tricky. You know, one thing I did want to mention as we were talking about this, you know, it's important for people to understand 40 to 50% of the children in the country are on Medicaid. So, you know, the, the commercial footprint is not only really important, but the actually the commercial footprint is almost what's keeping the hospitals alive in some settings. Uh, because the percentage of Medicaid in our city, except for Boston Medical Center, which is a primarily inner city urban population, most of the adult hospitals have a 10 to 12% footprint of Medicaid. Uh, you know, so it's very different in the pediatric world than the adult world. And I think as we think about that, that, you know, COVID, David mentioned COVID briefly, but, but when we see what happens when the children are not in school in a broad way and not in daycare, when we think about children with medical complexity, that impact on the family is extraordinary. So the ability to keep these kids out of the hospital, even out of specialty appointments, if we can do better remote care and better virtual care, remote monitoring, the ability of families to have a normal life outside of caring for a very complicated child is critical economically. Otherwise, they effectively go bankrupt um, because they can't work. Which brings us, I think, to another point I would be interested in everyone chiming in on, which is uh, the role of care coordination and wraparound services to help these families 
succeed. Um, you know, Mike, I know that, that you've had a, you have a nice viewpoint on that and, and how the fee-for-service model complements or doesn't complement that need that we uniformly see. Yeah, I mean, we, we are trying to experiment now with a mixed model of, uh, of uh, uh, per member per month payment in primary care uh, with a, a lower fee-for-service payment, but still a fee-for-service payment because it helps to support access and it helps uh, to support payment for things like ancillary services, which vary greatly from one practice to another. Uh, but we are experimenting with different payment models in our state to see if uh, see if there are ways that we can we can make the incentives line up a little bit better to su to fully support the care coordination that that uh, everybody has been mentioning, uh, both in primary care and in the academic centers where we feel like the uh, the the care coordination is generally funded on the back of fee for service payment, and and, and that may not be sufficient uh, as there are restrictions in growth and stuff. Uh, uh, based on uh, governmental regulations or other insurer uh, needs. Yeah. So it's, it's really a challenge to find the right payment model for kids uh, in, addition, in addition to the right service model. And I think that's where it's exciting to see a payer in the conversation trying to figure that out on a national level. Because many of these kids travel uh, because, uh, you know, Phoenix may be expert in one thing and somebody in a neighboring state might be expert in something else. And we can't always meet all their needs. Yeah, I just want to dig a little bit deeper into something Michael just touched upon, um, which is how do you fund these services? And particularly, you know, I talked about COVID's now magnified how much is being done away from the office visit. And I think we uh, there are things that are going to remain post-COVID, and one of them is going to be our need to proactively care for folks and not depend on someone showing up in said office. To do that, and I think that to, uh, in many ways we're expediting changes to the healthcare system right now that need to happen and need to persist beyond the pandemic. But particularly for these teams, if you think of it from you know, there's a push and pull here. You know, hospitals want and health systems are willing to consider doing the kind of work which takes a lot of proactive care management, a lot of telephonic outreach, a lot of video um, and, uh, and telehealth uh, resources a lot of IS resources to help develop these applications, but you know, health systems run on predictable budgets. You know, shared savings is not a predictable budget. Uh, to me, what you, you know, as I've navigated some of these ACO contracts, what you'd like to be able to do is raise a predictable um, capitation that funds the ser services you need to do, but that, you know, to get to the kind of levels we need off the PMPM, you know, because you're still going to have some fee-for-service there for specialty care procedures and those types of things. There's a quick, you know, there has to be some level of a give back to, I think, the health insurers, which is transparency about how, how those resources are spent. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I think there's, uh, there's some cynicism, perhaps, that those just go into operating revenue, for example, whereas I, I think it becomes incumbent to kind of, A, share that information. And if you're going to share risk, it might be on some of your process outcomes related to did we actually reduce length of stay? And if we didn't, we'll return a piece of our PMPM. But trying to kind of calculate, you know, total shared savings, et cetera, you know, focus on the outcomes that matter. And that's keeping people out of the hospital, keeping people functional in their homes. But I think we have to kind of solve the right funding model that allows predictable budgets uh, for health systems to plan every year and, and gives back to the insurance companies some risk, but also some transparency that the, that the money's being used in a way they would like to see. Well, and David, I just want to emphasize that what you just said applies not just to children with special health care needs. 
So as we, most people, when they hear that description, think of a lot of physical complexity. And I think what we've learned, the more we dive into this pediatric value-based space, what we very much understand are the important um, social determinants of health that play a role here. And on the surface, these children may not flag as, quote, complex. And so I think it, what you said is very important, but shouldn't we shouldn't limit that conversation just to children with special health care needs that are physical. We should, we should expand it to children and families in, in social crisis, include behavioral health complexity, and others that really need those services to, to thrive as well. Absolutely, Jody. Totally agree with you. There's no question we have to include in particular the behavioral health services because almost every child with medical complexities has behavioral complexities. You can't separate them out. And as a result, they end up having uh, social determinants of health that are quite stressed. Yeah, and we put a ton of effort into, into those services. We now have our entire pediatric network has integrated behavioral health uh, uh, in their pediatric practices seeing something like 40,000 visits a month or something. I mean, it's an extraordinary number. During the pandemic peak, they were doing 100% of it remote. Um, and so it's actually been an incredibly good learning model uh, for, for those practices. We've started to do some, uh, even uh, Suboxone prescribing for uh, children with heroin addiction uh, and things like that wow. in our South Shore practices where there's very limited access to those services and, and a greater part of that epidemic. Uh, and then have added regional support teams uh, in different quadrants of the state to do the social service work and that's more deeply involved that the practice cannot handle, that the, if it's beyond the medical home care coordinator for a, a referral for uh, services that they need. And they connect to a number of different food agencies and housing agencies where we have a program through our ACO, uh, what they call flexible benefits is funded to, to even uh, support housing so that people who are, uh, who are at risk of losing their housing get supports through that program uh, and, and other types of things. Because once they lose their housing, the cost of that uh, and, and the damage to that family is extraordinarily greater than it costs to actually sustain people in housing uh, with marginal supports like utility bills or things like that. It's, it's an incredible challenge that we face that's doomed to get worse, I think, uh, in the next 12, 24 months. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think it's, it's imperative on us to do that. It's, it's great to hear you guys are thinking. Yeah, for interest, um, Mike and I have, Mike's been really helpful as we were thinking about how to integrate behavioral health into primary care. Um, he connected us to his team and, and the project that they're doing. And due to lack of feasibility to reproduce what they were doing, we actually came up with a different model that we've been doing for um, about a year and a half now, where we are utilizing the psychiatry expertise we have in our children's healthcare system to do online. It was fortuitous that we decided to do it this way before the pandemic, online faculty learning communities with our uh, pediatricians in the network, empowering them to um, screen, diagnose, and do first-line treatments for anxiety, depression, and ADHD. And part of the collaboration is that connection to our PCH psychiatry. We created what we call the Bridge Clinic uh, within the Phoenix Children's um, Psychiatry Department so that if our primary care doctors identify children who really need a psychiatrist, they've gone beyond that first level of expertise, um, this is a clinic where we reserve appointments 
um, and get children in quickly, and they're not meant to stay there forever. We use this as a stopgap to help them get psychiatric care, move it forward, keep them stabilized, keep them out of the hospital while they're waiting to get in, which we all know um, are long wait lists in the community for um, psychiatrists, particularly those that take insurance. Um, and we've found that to be very, very successful. As the numbers of behavioral health crises have gone up, particularly in the pandemic, we've been able to um, keep our admission rate steady and, um, and really are, are attributing that success to both of these efforts, the Bridge Clinic and the education we've been able to provide to the community. I think that you all have raised a lot of great points so far in our discussion. Obviously, the need for more care coordination, integrating behavior health, um, more point of care solutions to actually change behaviors on the front lines. Um, the list goes on. But let me turn maybe to you, Dr. Mendelson. Um, what other challenges are you seeing right now for pediatric leaders that we haven't touched on yet? Well, we've touched on a lot of them. I mean, there's the challenges from the United Healthcare side, and then there's the challenges from the hospital system side. So it's a bit of an awkward question, to be honest. Um, you know, from the the perspective of our uh, healthcare leaders across the country, trying to partner with the insurance system and provide good coordinated care, I think, is a challenge that we all are trying to meet every day. How do we provide care for these children in a way that is helpful to their parents. So many parents of children with multiple birth defects or multiple problems have to come back and forth to the hospital in an uncoordinated fashion. It's really hard for them. They come back and forth across uh, months and, and they miss work and it's very hard. And it's taxing on the hospital system. So how do we partner to create a better system that works for families? I think that's one of our biggest challenges. I would agree. I would throw one more out, which is the cost of pharmaceuticals. You know, no matter what we do, that's, that's the, that is driving the cost of care more than any single item in our system. And, uh, you know, we now have a new medicine. It's $5 million a dose. Right, we just we passed the million dollar a dose one a couple of years ago and thought we were hitting the peak, uh, and and you know I, it's uh, it's it's truly remarkable what we're able to do with some of these treatments. You know the fact that we're actually uh, you know we've demonstrated the first what looked to be cures in sickle cell disease, which is just a, a scourge on the planet and just a just a horrible uh, disease for many families and children to live through. The fact that we can see cures or uh, at least significant relief of disability in some of these genetic syndromes is truly unbelievable. But we have to figure this out in some affordable way. Um, for the systems, all of those children end up uh, with uh, a public payer for those products at some point in time, uh, and and then the commercial payers are 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 are, uh, are uncertain. Also, you know what happens with uh, with uh, those payments, and so it's 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 really a challenge um, to think about. Well, first of all, I'm a clinical geneticist by training. And 30 years ago when I started this, I didn't dream that we'd have the kind of treatments we're beginning to have. So there's nothing better. I just love seeing that we're actually doing something to help these kids. It's great. Um, I agree with you. It's very expensive. And the, for me, the question is, and I, believe me, I don't have the answer. How do we 
share in the reduced morbidity and mortality. So if you're giving someone a gene therapy that hopefully is curative, it may cost $5 million and they may change insurance companies in, uh, in 11 months. So how, how are we going to, you know, and, and believe me, if it's the right thing to do, you know, we need to find a way to make sure that child gets the treatment because it's it, not only so we can sleep at night and so that we can reduce the morbidity and the mortality of that child and, and morbidity is expensive particularly in these genetic disorders. So how do we as not just a, our company, but as a society, reap the benefits of that shared and um, savings? Yeah, it's always been a problem in my discussion with insurers. I'm glad you brought that up. It's very, very difficult to offer a treatment at that kind of cost to an insurance company that may only have that kid attributed to them for a year. Um, and it's, it's, it's the malalignment of the way, you know, health insurance and, and the churn of health insurance in this country that we don't have that. And, and, uh, and one, of, one of the unique advantages when you, when you're, when a, when a child, even in a child in Medicaid, they switch Medicaid managed care insurers. It's the, it, it's right. the same, it's the same challenges. And then we have not figured out a solution to marry the cost of that treatment to how we do insurance design in this country. That's a nice way of saying that. Fantastic. Well, we have covered a lot of ground in the past 30 minutes. Um, before we end today's session, though, I'd love to turn the floor over to you all one last time, just to share any final thoughts, key takeaways, um, advice for other pediatric leaders out there. What would you want them to take away from this session? Um, maybe we can start with you, Dr. Carter, and then go to Dr. Mendelson, Dr. Rubin, and Dr. Lee. Yeah, I mean, um, I, well, thank you for the opportunity um, I was to have this conversation. Um, I think my hope is that those listening will take away from those of us on the call who've been really working diligently and deeply in this space for a good three to five years, which is a, about how long we've been um, focused on pediatric accountable care organizations, still a relatively new concept. Um, these are really tough problems to solve, and I think what I hope comes across as a, as, as a point is, despite the fact that we all live in different markets and that we all live and serve different populations, there are common themes um, that we find um, together when it comes to trying to keep children healthy and well. Um, and, and optimize outcomes. And, and I hope that the audience is hearing those key takeaways that are uniform to all of us living and working in this space. Well, thank you. And for me, um, I'm struck by how much we all agree and how little we disagree on, uh, which is uh, encouraging. I think there's a lot we can learn from complex pediatric care and we can partner to create those solutions. I also think that the pediatric complex care and the problems and solutions we come to can teach us about the adult systems. So adult systems are less coordinated than pediatric systems. And I think we have a long road to haul, to sow. Um, and we need to take what we learn from the pediatric system and apply it to the adult systems as well. I'll go next, I'll let uh, uh, Michael back clean up um, but uh, for me, it's like, you know, it's, 
I think there's a recognition now that, you know, what's failed our healthcare system is a lack of, of proactive care on behalf of families. It's a very reactive model. I think in pediatrics, we're further ahead on the, on the model of proactive care. There's a recognition that it's not just about doctors and the doctor visit. It's about social workers and psychologists and care navigators or what we call our medical assistant level uh, um, in terms of helping people navigate their lives. And it, the applications are not just in pediatrics, they're in adults. We need both to identify the stable funding that and the financing model that supports that work. And then you have to leverage that team's capability of building their own solutions and not doing top-down solutions that are clunky at the level of the front line. The front line knows what they wanna do. They, they wanna create efficiency for themselves. They wanna distribute work across uh, their team so that everyone's operating at the top of their game. Um, and, and when that individual needs to confer with the doctor, the doctor is, is playing to the top of their game and not managing paperwork after hours or, um, uh, or needless prior auths or, or et cetera, when they can focus on just taking care of their patients. And so to me, the, the models are there and the point of care, and now is the time for the point of care solutions that will help us deliver value and uh, more richly uh, valued services among the, the patients we serve. Great. Well, thanks for letting me go last. Uh, the, uh, it's hard to add to all of this. I will say that I'm an eternal optimist. And uh, what I've seen over the last uh, four years now almost is, is really uh, a tremendous pooling of effort nationally to try to move these issues forward. And, and that to me is very reassuring. I agree 100% with what other, others have said. I wish we could have argued more, uh, but that the, um, the um, ability to think ahead of what families and children need is, is a very doable proposition. We will not prevent every hospital admission because kids get acute things and, and, and that just happens. And we're not gonna prevent every hospital admission and every kid with a complex medical disorder because they have a lot of instability, uh, especially kids who need technology all the time or who have other major acute diseases. But we can do so much better in understanding their environment, understanding the language they need to speak, understanding the language their parents speak, uh, understanding uh, what, what is going on in their neighborhoods and, and, and their homes. And, uh, and I'm very optimistic that we can improve this. And uh, I'm thrilled to have been a part of the discussion. Thank you. I think it's great to end on such an optimistic note. You know, as you all said, these are complex issues to try to solve. But I think the dialogue, collaboration, idea sharing that you have all shown today um, is a really important part of starting to find those solutions. So I just want to say again, thank you all so much for being here, sharing some of your thoughts. I thought it was a really beneficial discussion. Um, and I'd also like to thank our attendees for taking some time out of all of your days to be part of the Becker's Pediatric Leadership Virtual Forum. Please be sure to check out our other great sessions as part of this event. Let us know if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. Otherwise, thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you at future Becker's events. Thank you all again. <laughs>